Most of you can open to 1 John chapter 1. It's near the back of your Bible. While you're doing that, I want to see by raise of hands, we're going to get in your business a little bit with your finances. How many of you have ever been in debt at some point and you have gotten out of debt? Now, you may not be out of debt right now, but at some point, you got completely out of debt. Let me see your hands raised, okay? All right. Now, Dave Ramsey has this program uh, where he actually, he actually has you cut your credit card as a symbol, like once you get out of debt, and it's like this celebration. Um, anyone make the mistake by celebrating being out of debt by going out and having a big meal and spending money? I mean, that, you're just like, oh, that's what got me in there in the first place, and here I am going, you know, going back into it. Well, maybe for those of you who are currently in debt, and most of America has a really high level of comfort with how much debt that they will carry, here's some encouragement. At least I think it's encouragement. I want to show you the U.S. national debt as of, it's growing, right? But as of, I think about Wednesday in the, in the mid-afternoon. It's a really, really big number. And hopefully for your own personal debt, it will be some source of encouragement that at least it's not this big of a number. Now, if you take the, the uh, population and you were to divide it, if you're going to take our population and divide it by that number, each person's amount would be 55 thousand dollars. So some of you thought you were out of debt. Guess what? You're back in debt, right? So again, I'm a mixed bag on whether this is encouraging or not. Now, here's the thing with the national debt that we also know is that it's growing every single day by some estimates, 2.3 billion per day that this thing is growing. So these are, these are giant astronomical numbers that are kind of hard to get your head around. We're going to come back to to money and to the national debt in just a little bit. So I want to just kind of put that in your brain um, for, for a moment. Uh, Andy Stanley is a pastor in Atlanta. He wrote a book that I read a few years ago. It's called Enemies of the Heart. And, uh, and in Enemies of the Heart, what he talks about is this debt-debtor relationship that goes on uh, within people. Kind of like you would owe people money, uh, there is a debt-debtor relationship uh, dynamic that, that, that goes on with relationships. And it works like this. Uh, basically, uh, that when wrong happens, those in effect put you in debt to the person that you have wronged. Now, let's say that I owe Jonathan here $3,000. Uh, now, if you know me, that's a giant sum of money for me. I don't run around you know, $3,000 in my wallet all the time and all of that. And so I've, I've borrowed this money from Jonathan do you understand that um, Jonathan's a musician, so we might be doing music together. Jonathan is an outdoorsman. In fact, we went on a hike to Half Dome this summer. We might be hiking and doing things outdoors, but no matter what else is going on in our relationship, that $3,000 is kind of with us. Do you see that? That debt is right there. Now, what if uh, Jonathan comes to me and says, look, I'm a senior in high school. Uh, you're, you're a gainfully employed person. Can I please have my 3000 back? And I say, look, Jonathan, easy, man. I'll have this for you by the end of the month. Okay, can you wait that long? Okay, sure. He's a good guy. He's a nice guy. And we've got some, we've got some relational equity. So he says, yes, okay. Well, let's say it's now May of 2017. I haven't paid Jonathan back yet. You tell me, how is Jonathan's feelings toward me when, when he sees my name come up on his cell phone? What is he thinking about? Money! Where's mine? This is the guy that owes me $3,000! Now, I know Jonathan. He's not all about money. That's not the kind of guy Jonathan is. But the, but the deal is this. As time goes on, there's sort of this compounding interest 
that goes with it. So if it's an overdue debt, all of a sudden it's not just the 3000 It's the fact that it's overdue. Look, it's been you know 27 months or however many months that is that, that you're past due on this. And I was being gracious in the first place to give you the 3000 Think about this in your relationship. Think about the fact that when you wrong someone, there's a certain indebtedness that goes on. And if that's compounded and that, and that begins to feel overdue, that that debt is right there with you. Proverbs says this, that the borrower is slave to the lender. Imbalance in relationship. Excellent read if you ever get the chance to read this book. Here's what he points out. He points out uh, only two ways to resolve this is that somebody pays up, that a debt is paid. Or, second option, the one who is owed the money could cancel the debt. Jonathan could come and say, hey, I've got a birthday present for you. I say, what? He goes, your, your debt's paid for. It's gone. That's no longer between us. You no longer owe me that 3000 plus whatever interest should, should be there. So those are the only ways to come to resolution with that. He lays out four emotions that can really lodge in a person's heart and lodge in in relationships between us. If you owe me, it produces feelings of anger. If I owe me, then it produces greed. Some of you walk around and have a very hard time being happy when other people have good things go on for them. Maybe because you struggle with this. God owes me. God owes me produces feelings of jealousy. And then the one we want to zero in on today, and the one that really applies to what we're talking about, is I owe you. And I owe you produces guilt in the heart. Now, we've been kind of phrasing our series right now called Fighting Forest Fires, handling powerful emotions that, if left unchecked, can really cause some massive carnage in our lives. I mean, look at things like fear and grief and doubt. And today we're going to look at guilt and shame. And just one of these emotions that, that cause so much damage. Think about this. Every wrong act could be restated as a theft. And if I've wronged someone, then, then there's a sense of that I owe that person someone. Let me give you an example that isn't far-fetched. I worked in youth ministry for years and years and have seen the devastation that this causes. Let's say that dad and husband decides one day, after months of planning, to run off with another woman abandoning the family. We could, we could state what he's done in terms of being a thief. He has stolen from every member of his family by that one act. Let me show you what I mean. To the wife, he has stolen from her her first marriage. Now, she may get married again, but that first marriage, he stole that from her. He quite possibly stole from her some financial security. She probably, he probably stole from her reputation. And for those of you who've lived through this, you could go, man, I've got a list a mile long. We could keep going with this, couldn't we? Let's move on to his children, though. To his children, he has stolen from his kids the mindset of what a dad is supposed to be. We all instinctively know what a good dad should be doing, and he shouldn't be running out on the family with another woman. So, so he's, he's stolen that by, by engaging in this act. He's also stolen from his children emotional and financial security. He's stolen Christmas together and family dinners and a legacy. These are the things that have been stolen. Now, sin never presents it this way. I can guarantee you that that guy is thinking about what he's going to gain. What he's going to gain is this. He's going to gain freedom to get out from under this crushing responsibility that grows every single passing day that he can't seem to handle on his own. 
And he begins to fantasize and dream about, man, what if I could get out from under that and not be around that anymore? That would be my gain. He thinks about what he's going to gain in this new relationship that makes him feel young again or whatever the storyline is. And never does he think about all that he has stolen from someone else. But guarantee you, the first time his little seven-year-old daughter walks up to him and with tears in her eyes looks dead in his eyes and says, Daddy, how come you don't love Mommy anymore? What he's just been handed is a notice, a massive IOU notice. And guilt invades that person's life. And he understands, I now owe my daughter something. I've taken something from my daughter. Here's what's interesting. In our regular, everyday interactions and the language that we use, it actually illustrates the truth uh, of this debtor-debt relationship. Um, Let me give you an example. Uh, Maybe you've said this. Go talk to your sister. You owe her an apology. Why why do you owe her something? Well, you owe her something because you've taken something from her. Now, maybe the only currency that you have in that moment is words, but you need to pay her back. You need you owe her an apology. Uh, maybe you've you've thought about this. Um, well, well, consider our dad in this story. Uh, he has this crushing debt to his kids. What does he seek to do? He seeks to make it up to them. Have you heard that before? Well, why is he making something up to them? He's making it up because he's stolen from them, and he has a deep sense that I owe them something. So here's that debt debtor relationship. Um, played out for us. Now, some of you may have been in really deep debt before, financially. And when you're in really bad debt, what happens is your bad choices leading you to get into debt, spending more than is coming in, leads you to make really, really, really dumb choices. Because now you're desperate. Now you're feeling really vulnerable. Now you're not thinking clearly at all, and you're just grasping at straws. And the same is true relationally. When we get into relational debt, there's a certain indebtedness that we go, why did I do that? That was a bad choice. But now that we're so deep in, we begin grasping at straws because we're desperate. We're vulnerable. We're in some of these places. I've had kids come to me and say, you know what? My parents are trying to buy me off. They're trying to buy back my love. Interesting language, isn't it? I say, well, what does that mean? They say, well, they're buying me... You know, they didn't use the word, but trinkets. You know, I got a brand new this. I got, a, I got that. Or experiences. I got to go do this. And I go, well, why? You know, they're just, they're just getting you stuff. What's the deal? Well, I'll tell you what I want. It's from a 16-year-old kid, strapping young kid. I'll tell you what I want is I want my dad to go tuck me in through elementary school. That's what I want. Wow. And here, this kid processing in his mind is that I feel like I'm trying to be bought back, like my love's trying to be bought back in some way. Some parents place an unhealthy importance on the child in a way of offsetting the debt that has gone on in the broken home. Some parents of, of, teenage, uh, parents become, uh, of, of teenage kids become really, really permissive. And their permissiveness is actually masking this growing IOU that's there. And they think, well, I've already borrowed 3000 I'm indebted to this person. I can't go and exert my parental authority and ask for 300 more. Just go do what you want. The one who loses in every single one of these scenarios, worst, is the kids. Now, lest we say, well, that's just for broken homes. Nonsense. You can have homes that aren't broken, right, that are very, very broken. 
Some people would look back and say, man, my career took a turn in this one phase and I really stole from the people I love most as I went and pursued that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but we have some college football fans around here, okay? Um, Some people would look back and say, man, every Saturday, every fall, are you kidding me? Like, what was I thinking? I was robbing my children of some of their their growing up years. I wish I could make it back to them. I I I wish I could pay them back. I have this IOU that's there. I'm just picking on two things, career and, and a hobby, you know, college football. But on and on it goes where we end up doing this to other people. Someone came to me before first service, and she said this. She said, guilt, oh, are we talking about guilt this morning? I said, yeah. She said, that's a big one for me. I said, you know what? I think that's a big one for a lot of people. I mean, guilt is so rampant and so devastating that I think we want to go back to the national debt number and go, let's work on that problem. That actually actually seems manageable now. Let's start chipping away at that because this, this guilt thing, this shame thing is so weighty. Well, God speaks into our guilt. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 7. It says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So what do you do when you sin? Well, according to the scriptures, the Christian has a part in this, and Jesus has a part in this. Quite simply, the Christian is to confess. And if you bump back up to verse 7, and to walk in the light, right? That's how you combat sin. That's what you do with your sin. You confess it. Jesus' part, he's faithful, and he's just to forgive. If you think about a guilty person, what a guilty person needs is they need their debt paid or canceled. That's the way of resolution. They need to be forgiven. If you are sitting guilty, what you need most is to be forgiven. That's what you're longing for. This is where the gospel comes in. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes you can get sharing with people and God just opens this door and you realize, wow, this is a perfect opportunity to share with what you do with your guilt. Because I've tasted that and experienced that, and I should really tell them the gospel right now. And sometimes you get tongue-tied. Anyone ever ever get tongue-tied before? Where you're like, I should know this. I I, I know the gospel. I've experienced it. Um, And so you go start to try and talk about it. Here's what I love about the scriptures. If you read the gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament, what you see is Jesus talking a ton about what you could term as kingdom parables. You'll you'll, you'll notice them because he'll say this. The kingdom of God is like. Right? And then he goes and tells a little story. Sometimes they're short, sometimes they're long. What he's doing in each one of those, I mean, read the kingdom parables. What you're getting is the gospel. You, you, you see little glimpses of the gospel. And then in the rest of the New Testament, just read through the book of Acts, you see the likes of Peter and Paul picking up the gospel. And when they share the gospel, they don't regurgitate the kingdom parables. They don't just say, well, this is how you share the gospel. In fact, if you look at Paul, for instance, he's in, in, in uh, Acts 17, he's on Mars Hill. He's reasoning daily in the synagogues and in the marketplace. 
And as he does so, he's talking with philosophers who love to spend their days talking about new ideas and this and that. And so he shares the gospel in a way that's relevant to them. He gives little snippets over here. Sometimes he gives whole big long sermons over here. Uh, sometimes he really condenses it. If you believe with your heart uh, and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. So there's different ways to share the gospel. I want to lift that from you so you don't think, I need to memorize this little paragraph, barf that out wherever I go, and now I've said the gospel to people. But let me give you a little tool that's three words. This is the gospel in three words. And if you really focus on these three words, it keeps you on the straight path. Here it is. Ready? God saves sinners. That's the gospel in three words. Remember the Galatians series? The Galatians series was called, the whole series was called Right from God. And the driving point of Galatians was this. You're not made right in any other way. We don't reach up to God. You are made right from God. God saves sinners. Saves is going to get you on track with what you need salvation from. The fact that we're sinners puts people in their right place. Now, do we have a part in in the exchange, in terms of placing our trust, believing in Christ? Yes, absolutely. Does that have anything to do with us getting saved? No, it's always God's work all the time. So God saves sinners is kind of a little easy, three words to remember. I want you to uh, check this out sometime. Sometimes on my lunch hour, I like to go to Way of the Master. I think it's waythemaster.org or something, but it's this guy named Ray Comfries, this little New Zealand guy. And what he does, he goes to Santa Monica Pier. And Santa Monica Pier, he goes around and he just has a video camera and a, and a microphone. And he just does like street witnessing with people. And his big thing is this. Um, he will come to people and say, uh, you know, um, uh, Tim, do you think you're going to heaven? And Tim might say, uh, yeah, I, I do. You know, and he says, okay, well, well, how come? He said, do you think you're a good person? And Tim goes, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. And so he goes, well, can we just do a little test here? Sure, we'll do a test. Um, so we, we, uh, we say, well, well Tim... Um, have you ever lied before? Sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, so then we say, well, how about we put a number on that? How many times have you lied in your life? Most people say, well, gosh, I, I, thousands of times. I don't know. Okay. What do you call someone who lies? A liar. Okay. Next question. Have you ever stolen anything in your life? No matter how valuable it was, have you ever stolen something? Most every person says, yeah. What do you call someone who steals? A thief, right? And then he moves on. Um, have, you ever, um, have you ever taken God's name in vain? So you hit your you know, thumb with a hammer and you say, oh, my G-O-D. And you explain, uh, yeah, I, I, I've, I've done that. Okay, well, that's blasphemy, and that's a very serious offense against a holy God. Uh, next one. Have you ever looked to a woman uh, with lust in your eyes? Have you ever lusted after a oh, Well, yeah. You know, I have. Well, Jesus said it quite clearly that, that to do so is to commit adultery in your heart. So let's just say we've just taken four of the Ten Commandments. You, by your own admission, are a, a lying, thieving, blasphemer who, who's committed adultery in his heart. How, how are you doing so far? Most people, in a few minutes, and they, they, they kind of do what you do. They release the tension with a little bit of laughter, and they go, not so good. And then he asks this question, how is God, how is a holy judge going to let you into his kingdom with, with, by your own admission, I haven't told you you're a guilty sinner who needs to repent. And they say, well, well I don't really know, but I, I know that I'm a good person. Well, transfer that to a regular court of law that all of us would have a sense of justice to. Someone comes and uh, is, 
is you know, drunk out of their mind, drives through a school zone at 55 miles per hour and runs down three children, stands before the judge, and he says, look, I, I, I know the cameras got me. I did that. That's unquestioned. However, I worked at that kids' club that Sharon talked about. I mean, I served my community. I picked up trash voluntarily on the highway. And, you know, for seven months, I worked at an, at an old person's home and just called out bingo numbers. How is that going to fly in court? So, thank you for sharing that, right? But you catch this, catch the language. You owe a debt to society. You're indebted to us. You're guilty. And then he goes on to say, do you know what God did? And sometimes people have a vague concept of Jesus, but he just says this, look, 2,000 years ago, God sent his very own son to live a perfect life. And then he died the death that you should have died so that he can legally dismiss your case before the righteous and holy judge and you can go away not guilty. That's the gospel. God saves sinners. The guilty person needs to know that they are forgiven and Jesus pays the debt of the guilty. But think about the shamed. The shamed aren't always helped by forgiveness alone. I would say that shame is kind of the, the close, uh, behind-the-scenes cousin of guilt. It's often the result of one's own sin. So, for instance, blushing or hiding or not wanting to let anyone else know about this problem I have or this thing I do or these thoughts that I have. And so shame accompanies it. But shame doesn't just come from your own sin. Sometimes Shame is the result of someone else's sin against you. I'll, I'll use a really, I think, immediately recognizable example, child abuse. If you're an adult victim of child abuse today, you could be a big strapping guy who's successful in every way, and at the mention of a single name, you could be a puddle of tears in a moment. Why? Because their guilt, their sin on you has, has lodged in your soul, I'm worthless, I'm worse than that. I'm, I'm nothing. I'm dirty. And so shame begins to be this, this covering or this label that you wear. A shamed person can be forgiven, but needs something more. A shamed person needs honor. A shamed person needs restoration, healing, cleansing from the dirtiness or the broken sense of self. Look back at 1 John 1.9 again. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, catch this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus pays the penalty for the guilt and makes us pure and blameless, honored members of God's kingdom, beloved, welcomed children, You are accepted. That's the message that a shamed person needs to hear. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus entered the world at a point in human history and in a location which is very much a shame-honor culture? So this is foreign to many of us who were born and raised in the U.S. because although there are components of this, we are not a shame-honor culture. 
But through much of the Near East, Middle East, and, and Asia, shame and honor are, are the biggest things. Let me just give, a, give a, a quick thing. The highest reward in this culture is not monetary or not control. Uh, instead, it's honor. And likewise, the worst punishment wouldn't be taking away freedom, wouldn't be financial in some way, but rather would be shame. And worst of all is public shame. Those are the currencies that are kind of dealt in that. Just think about some of the stories. I just ran through my head briefly about some of the people Jesus came across. The woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Shame on you! In a shame-honor culture? I mean, that's everything. That was part of the trap that these devious religious leaders had, had put out. They wanted to catch her in the very act because that was the worst form of punishment right there. Let me give you a second one, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a man who had a shameful job. He was getting wealthy off of his countrymen by extorting money from them. He was actually a chief tax collector, which means he was the mob boss. He was the boss of other people who were extorting. He was a wicked man. And I'm sure he got this look from his fellow countrymen every single day. You should be ashamed of yourselves, of, of, of yourself. How about poor beggars who were bankrupt on the honor scale? How about lepers who, aside from suffering from a terrible disease physically, had to go through the streets shouting what? Unclean! No honor! Shame! I bet for all the physical ailments of a leper, by far the worst torment was the isolation and the bankruptcy of any sense of honor or acceptance was by far the worst part of that. Jesus' own disciples who ran and flat out denied even knowing Jesus, which does what? It brings dishonor to the name. Shame, shame, and more shame. We can read the scriptures and find ourselves in here, can't we? We go, yeah, we see this growing sense of, of guilt and shame. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he washes clean. He forgives, yes, but he also restores and he heals, and he gifts his children with honor. And he clothes our nakedness, as it were, with himself as the robe of honor. That's the picture of Jesus. So how do we fight the forest fire of guilt and shame? Before closing with a few, I hope, really practical ways to apply this, I want to talk about conscience for one moment. Conscience, if you, take, if you take this word and just break it uh, in, in two, it's a, it's a compound word which simply means with knowledge, right? So chili con carne is chili with meat, right? So, so con is with and science is knowledge. So, so conscience means that you go forward doing things in full knowledge of things. Now you might say, that's great for Christians Day, but I'm not a Christian. Nonsense. Listen to Romans. Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Here's the point. Whether you have the law specifically written out, yes or no, there is a law at work that's written on the heart of every man and woman. And it's universal. Not only is it universal, but it's unique 
to mankind. Think about your dog for a minute, okay? Your dog gets into the trash. When he gets into the trash and he strews it all over, he doesn't look at it and go, Ah! I'm so ashamed. What kind of a dog am I, right? No. He's a little hungry because he has some salty stuff, so he goes to the toilet and he drinks out of it, right? Now, as he's drinking out of the toilet, he's not drinking out of it going, Oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I told myself I'd stop, and it tastes so good. No, he finishes drinking, and he dribbles it all down the hallway. This is hypothetical, not. And if you're not convinced yet, watch your dog take a bath, okay? His tongue is the washcloth. No shame with a dog, right? He's licking, he's lifting. He's not looking around going, ah, this is really awkward. He's just doing it, right? He feels no guilt. I know we see the puppy dog eyes and the ears back. We think he's guilty. He's not guilty. He's like, please give me dinner still. That's all he's thinking. Please leave the trash unlocked again because those are some good eatings. Humans possess this inner voice, this inner dialogue, but the reality is we can quiet it, can't we? Shh! We can shush the conscience. We can try to be dismissive of it. Look at our passage. If we say we have no sin, what is that all about? And when I read that this morning, you didn't go, huh, who would ever do that? You thought, yeah, I've done that. Every one of us plays this game. If you say you have no sin, this is that inner dialogue. It's not that wrong. It may be off base, but it's not anything of what that guy does down the hall in his cubicle. So this this inner dialogue goes on back and forth of justifying, rationalizing, minimalizing. The Bible cuts to the core. Liar. Guilty. Even if you talk yourself out of it. Still guilty. The Bible talks a lot about conscience. It can be ignored so long that it actually begins to be calloused. If you're a guitar player, then you have some, you have some, some calloused fingertips from pushing on strings. And kind of a cool little trick is you could put your finger on something hot and not feel it for a little while, right? Why? Because there's extra skin that's there. You've lost the sensitivity to it. Don't try this at home if you're a beginner because your calluses aren't big enough. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 says this, that people can have a weak conscience. There's also a defiled conscience talked about in Titus 1. How about a seared conscience from 1 Timothy 4, 2? You get enough individuals with seared consciences. All of our consciences are, are broken by the fall. But you get a collective group of people together with seared consciences, you know what you have? You have a whole culture going off base. Let me show you a passage from the Old Testament. Here's Jeremiah six fifteen. Were they ashamed because... Uh, were they ashamed when they became when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush. Zephaniah chapter three. But the unjust knows no shame. Would you agree that we're living in a day and age that's forgetting how to blush? Living in a culture that you go, do we even know? Have we been introduced to shame yet? Do we even know this anymore? Philippians three eighteen says, for many. Walk as enemies of the cross. Their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It's not only that we're a shameless culture, it's that people are actually honored when they do deplorable things. Have you noticed that? The Bible talks all about it. There's nothing new under the sun. God knows about this. God speaks into this. Church, not us. That's not how it ought to be for us. 
would it be something totally different? Go back to the national debt in your mind for a, for a moment. There is, within each individual, within each home that you pass, within each relationship, there is this insurmountable debt, and it's growing, of guilt and shame. And frankly, the methods people are using to try to pay it down, to try to balance the debt, is silly. And what's odd is that people keep doing the same things over and over, even though it's not working. Some people try to deny it. Other people laugh at sin, which works for a season. Some just decide to make sin legal. Some take pride in their sin and shame. The most dangerous of all, though, I think, is minimizing it, toning it down, or trying to rename it. Psychology calls sin maladjustment. Biology labels it a disease. Ethics suggests that it's a moral lapse, and philosophy has its own terminology for it, too. The Bible calls it sin, for which we're guilty and we will stand judgment. That's the message of the Bible. It's telling us that. How to live guilt-free. I'm going to give you three things. The first is to cultivate a clear conscience. When you go back to Genesis 2, what you see is this. You have Adam and Eve, and they were naked and what? Unashamed. When sin entered the world, at the same moment, shame entered the world. And what did they do? They sought to get fig leaves and cover up. They started to blush. They started to hide themselves. And people have been doing that ever since. Because there's a law written on our hearts that say what you're doing is not acceptable. And even if culture keeps going and one day says what you're doing is acceptable, even if they vote it into law, even if they do this or the other thing, you know. And so we cover up. Christ is the robe that covers our nakedness. Romans 13, 13 says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. The Bible cuts right to the heart of it, doesn't it? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Back to 1 John, walk in the light. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, when you fall, what do you do? What do you do with your sin? We'll get to that. But a clear conscience is a byproduct of godly living, and it's the fruit of sin that has been properly dealt with, not buried out back, not given a cute label and set on a shelf, not compared with other people and thought, well, then it's okay. Rather dealt with in a proper way. Just jot these verses down if you're, if you're wanting to take some notes. But, but listen to how the conscience is to be sought after and cultivated, not just, I'm going to sit around God and you gift me a, a clear conscience. Here's Paul in Acts 24, 16. Acts 24, 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. You know what that means? That means in our prayer times we say, God, would you search my heart? I know I tend to cover stuff up. I know I tend to minimize. I know I tend to pull out, you know, point out all kinds of faults in other people. Would you show me my own sin? See if there's any wicked way in, in me. I want to confess it. I want to be open for you. It also means you take inventory. Uh, I'm buddies with Michael here. Uh, I, might, I might come to Michael and say, Michael, um, last weekend was weird. I don't know what went on. 
Uh, we got in a bit of an argument. Are we cool? How are things? Have I wronged you in some way? I need to, we, we need to talk about this. I want to get this out. Let's, let's talk about it. I take pains to have a clear conscience be, between God and all people. That's an active part on our role. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1.12. 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not in earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And here's one more. 1 Timothy 1.5. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love. Catch this. That comes from a pure heart a clear conscience, and genuine faith. Cultivate and seek after a clear conscience. Here's number two. Confess to those you've wronged. Confession ought to be the normal way of life for a sinner. A Christian is just a forgiven sinner. We go on sinning. We go on accumulating debt. A non-Christian is an unforgiven sinner. Only difference is that word forgiven or unforgiven. We both continue to accumulate shame and guilt. And so God's telling us, here's what you do with that. You don't say, well, I'm a Christian now, so of course I don't sin. And now I have to really do a good job of hiding it and covering it up. Jesus was most harsh on the, on the hypocrites of the day. And those who made other people hypocrites by their hypocrisy. Have you ever claimed 1 John 1.9 and still felt guilty? I remember in junior high, I probably learned it earlier, but about junior high, it started to click with me. I'm doing wrong stuff. I'm accumulating a national debt. I didn't put it in those terms, but I, I, I knew what was going on. And I learned 1 John 1.9. And I thought, wow, I thought I'd found a loophole. I was like, this is a sweet deal. Because I can sin and then confess God is faithful and just. He will forgive me and cleanse me. And then guess what happens next week? I get to sin again. Wow, God did not know what he was doing when he put this verse in here. I thought there was some sort of a loophole that, that went on. Some people, though, they've read 1 John 1, 9, and they've closed their eyes, and they've claimed that promise, and they still feel guilty. And they wonder why. So they slow it down. They close their eyes even tighter and say it more slowly. And then they go, I don't know what's happening. Maybe I need to think happy thoughts and click my heels, you know. If we confess with our, you know, and we start, we start confessing our sin and God, you're supposed to, you're supposed to purify me. Why do I still feel so guilty? Here's the problem. It's a misplaced understanding of the purpose of confession. The purpose of confession is not to ease your conscience. It's not to take a Tylenol for your conscience and make it go away for a while, to mask the pain for a while. Now, we could look as a Christian church on, on Catholic people and say, well, they go into a confessional and they go and confess. But you know what? We have our same version of that. People confessing to the pastor. So many people come and they tell me something and they go, I feel a lot better. And I go, I don't. I feel like a dirty jerk now. Thank you. Here's the thing. They want to confess to me so they could have a Tylenol for their conscience, there's no intent to change. They're going to go right back and do it again. If they confess to me something, my instruction to them would be, you know what, have you confessed this to God? If not, that's the first place. You've sinned first and foremost against him. Have you confessed this to your wife? Because that's who you're sinning against. 
You're not sinning against me. Go to your boss. That's who you're ripping off. Go to your neighbor. Go to your wife. Go to your husband. Go to your kids. Go confess to the person that you've wronged. Don't use confession as an accomplice to your sin. You know what the Bible ties confession into? It ties confession into words like restitution, repentance, and restoration. Here's here's restitution. Restitution is this. Uh, I stole something from Naomi, her car, and I feel really bad about it. You know what, uh, you know what restitution is, is feel bad about it, confess it, confess it, and give it back! Right? That's the deal. How about repentance? Repentance is, God, I know this is your straight and narrow path, but I went running the opposite way, away from you and straight toward a life of sin. And I feel really bad. You know what repentance is, don't you? It's to turn around. Feel really bad, confess, and turn around and get back on the straight and narrow toward God and away from sin. Otherwise, you're just easing your conscience. How about restoration? Restoration is you trash your friend's car. You chop down his tree in a fit of anger and being inspired by George Washington. You go plant some trees. You loan him firewood. You do whatever you can to restore the damage that you've done. Confession isn't change. It's just one critical key component to that. Let me give you one example from the scriptures. Zacchaeus. If you're raised in church, you think of Zacchaeus as a wee little man because there's a little song that goes on with it. As I mentioned before, he's a, he's a wicked, wicked man. That's how you ought to think of him. Jesus comes along and changes it all. And you know what he does? He confesses. But instinct, uh, instinctively, look or just listen to, to Luke 19.8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone anything, I'll pay them back fourfold. Now, the Old Testament law required that if you defrauded someone, you had to pay back like sort of an interest, basically. Four times the amount was over and above. It was exuberant. Here's the most telling part of this. Jesus' response. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say this. Zacchaeus, hold everything. You've already confessed. You've already placed your belief in me. That's enough. Don't make a spectacle of yourself. You signed the decision card. You're good, bro. No. Here's in essence what he said. You go read it yourself this afternoon. In essence, he said this. Now I know that salvation's come to this, this house, to this person. It's not just lip service. It's not just a Tylenol for the conscience. He's acting on it. Can you imagine how many awkward conversations that guy had to go do? With checkbook in hand, he went and said, Brother, I'm sorry for defrauding you. I defrauded you. Would you forgive me? Here's, here's fourfold the amount. Let's settle accounts. Do you see the debt-debtor relationship? Do you see the place that confessing not just to God but to the people we've wronged plays for us? Here's number three. Trust in God's plan of salvation. I'm not sure about you, but building an ark year after year would have been really, really tough to believe in. But God's plan of salvation in Noah's day was build an ark. There is coming judgment that is going to be devastating, and there's one path of salvation. It's to build an ark and get in it. No matter what people said, the people who genuinely believed were a tiny handful, and it was those who took a step into the ark. 
Imagine being traced, uh, chased by a bunch of crazy assassins. And in the midst of that, God says, uh, go put your staff in the ocean. God, this seems a little trivial. I'm being chased by an army of assassins. Do it. And that's the path of salvation. The Red Sea parts, and you go across on dry land, and you're saved. Trust in God's plan of salvation. We just sang a lyric to a song that said, you, 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 you think it's strange, so once did I. You trust in the plan of God's salvation. He's the one who dreamt up. How could dirty, filthy, rotten sinners who keep on accumulating debt live in peace and be made right with one another and with God? We couldn't dream this up. He dreamt it up. Trust in it. Maybe your response today is this. By the way, uh, go, go read Romans 6, 7, and 8. Go read Romans chapter 6, 7, 8 sometime this week and see if you don't find yourself within those three chapters. Here's part of the gist of one of them. The very thing that I want to do, why do I want to do it? Because it's written on my heart that it's good. I don't end up doing. And the very thing I don't want to do, why don't you want to do it? Well, because I feel bad inside. There's this voice in my head. I don't know. I just don't want to. It's, it's wrong. The very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. This is Paul talking in Romans 6, 7, 8. I love the Bible because it lays out my experience. I go, yeah, I can track with that. At the end of chapter 7, he says this, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then at the start of chapter 8, probably my favorite chapter in the Bible, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me invite the band to come on up. <clears throat> Maybe you say, yeah, I've heard the gospel before and I've done that. I've trusted in God's plan of salvation. Here's my challenge to you. Keep trusting. Because it's possible that you were confronted with your sin and your helplessness on a given day years ago. And you said, I've got nothing. There's no way to survive a worldwide flood. There's no way to get out from an ocean and an army. I have to move forward. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm going to grab onto God's. And so you trusted God's plan of salvation. But have you noticed that as time goes on, sometimes you start to lean on your own abilities to get yourself back out of a jam? The idea is trust in God's plan for salvation yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You've got to keep on trusting in God's plan. Not just when it's easy, not just when you were first coming to grips with your sin. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe this is brand new. Maybe you're being confronted with your guilt for the first time. Here's what I would say. Good. I know that it's painful. I know that it's a hard conversation. I know you'd rather look away. I know you'd like to keep putting silly labels on it. Evaluate your life. The way you're trying to pay down your debt is not working. It's not God's way. He won't let another way succeed. You need forgiveness. You need to know that you're accepted and made pure. It's found in Jesus Christ. If you receive that, tell someone today. Communicate that today. And then join a church family. I don't really care if it's this one or not. We'd love to have you. There's a lot of great Bible teaching churches in the area. Go walk with people who are pursuing Christ in this. And then, and then guess what? Go tell your friends. That's the life of a Christian. Hey, there's this good news. I've discovered it. You need to, you need to hear about it yourself. I wrap up with one little test. I think it's quite possible for us to 
know grace and forgiveness in an intellectual way and not actually experience it. Here's, here's my little test for you. Would you just honestly evaluate how you treat other people? Is the way that you treat other people able to be characterized by the words harsh, unforgiving, unmerciful? Or would you say the way that you generally treat other people is that you're patient, you're compassionate, and you're quick to forgive? I would put out as food for thought as we dismiss, those who've experienced real guilt and have received real grace are able to extend real forgiveness to other people. Not just from a head place, but from a, from a life place, from a fruit of what we've tasted of ourselves. Let me pray. God, thank you for speaking into our guilt and our shame. God, there's an enemy at work that wants to keep us isolated, not talking about these things, deflecting and dodging. We thank you that you bring it front and center on so many pages of Scripture. I pray for those present right now, maybe those listening online, God, just that, um, Father, you would allow them right now to do business, that they wouldn't waste another day, that they wouldn't go down another path looking for a solution. In Jesus' name, amen.